Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today I'm thrilled to say we are joined by my friend, Dan Moraine. Dan has covered California policy, politics, and justice-related issues for more than four decades, including 27 years at the Los Angeles Times, eight years at the Sacramento Bee, some time at Cal Matters, and he is the author of the new book, which I want to recommend to everybody, Kamala's Way. And Dan, let's start with the title. How did you pick this title? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Passing Judgment. I picked the title because the fabulous editor at Simon & Schuster said, I think this should be the title. Um, yes. And, and, and I just love it. You know, it's got multiple meanings. What was her path to get from where she started in 1964 when she was born to where she is now, a heartbeat away? And then it's also her style. So I love the title. As you said, she's a heartbeat away, meaning she's a heartbeat away from being the next president. She's now the vice president of the United States. She is a, for many people, a homegrown hero in the sense that she has a very, not just American story, but a story that's very much rooted in California. And I heard you on a, another interview with our friend of the podcast, Carla Marinucci, and you said, you know, this isn't just an American story. It's a California story. Could you talk a little bit more about why you think that her rise is just unique to California. It's called Common's Way in American Life, but it really could be a California life. I think, so she's born in 1964, and that's really an inflection point for California. Um, that's the year Lyndon Johnson's elected president. California votes for uh, Lyndon Johnson over Barry Goldwater in a big way. It's the first time in several cycles that a Democrat has won in California. It's also the year that Californians voted to support housing segregation. So there was an initiative on the ballot that year that basically allowed apartment owners to continue to keep segregated housing. It ended up getting overturned by the California Supreme Court and then the U.S. Supreme Court. So she's born at this time, October 1964. Willie Brown is elected to the assembly from San Francisco. He's the first black person elected from San Francisco to the legislature. But then she rises. Uh, well, her parents, of course, uh, go to UC Berkeley, uh, both immigrants, one from India, one from Jamaica. Uh, they both come to UC Berkeley. They don't go to Harvard or Princeton or the University of Texas at Austin. They go to UC Berkeley in part because it's a land-grant university. It's welcoming of uh, bright young people from everywhere. And so I think that that makes it a California story. Berkeley and Oakland are at the center of, of the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, uh, so many, the environmentalist movement, all the movements that started in the 60s and 70s, and also a lot of great music. But then she rises through politics in in a way that, you know, I just, I just can't imagine that Kamala Harris could have risen through the ranks in Texas or New York or Illinois in quite the way uh, she did in, in California, maybe Illinois. I mean, clearly Barack Obama rose there. But it just struck me as a very California story. I want to start first by talking a little bit about her relationships and 
in reading the book, it seems like her relationship with her mother plays a prominent role in how she goes from being Kamala Harris to being the first female and female of color vice president of the United States. Are there some very concrete ways where we see her mother's influence? I mean, in the sense that, again, she is a historic first in so many ways. Is this Kamala? Is it a mother saying to her, you can do anything, you must do this? What do we see in that relationship? Well, I I never met Shamala Harris, but I know many people who knew her. She sounds like an incredible force of nature. But I mean, you think about this person who came from India. Her passion was to become a scientist. She graduated from college in India. And at age 19, in 1959, she imposes on her parents to really her father to allow her to come halfway around the world to Berkeley. I mean, what a gutsy woman this must have been. And um, she got her PhD. She became a cancer researcher, breast cancer researcher. And then she got passed over for a job in in Berkeley. And and rather than sit around and brood, she got a job at McGill University up in Montreal and brought her two daughters there. So she's very much uh, driven and without a doubt drove both her daughters. I mean, this is a very high achieving family. Her mom, obviously a PhD cancer researcher, her father, a PhD, uh, an economist who taught at Stanford, tenured professor there. Her sister is, uh, goes to uh, Stanford. So without a doubt, her mother had high expectations for uh, her daughters, and they obviously delivered. I want to take a step back. I've heard you say something before, which is that Kamala Harris is a good politician. What makes her a good politician? Is it when you're in a room with her, you just feel like, you know, it's that old thing we used to say about Bill Clinton, you feel like you're the only person in the universe? Is it that she connects both in a one-on-one situation and in a large audience? I want to drill down a little bit on this, but I always hear that she's a good politician. In -hmm. what way? Yeah, well, I mean, it it is the case. i went to a speech that she gave in San Francisco some years back and and uh, she delivered her remarks and and she's a very good public speaker not the greatest but very very good and she came down off the dais and shook my hand and looked me in the eye and you know asked me about me and and I was the only person in the room right and she does that she's very good at that sort of uh retail level of politics she is charismatic. She walks into a room, she lights it up. You know, she's not very tall, but she has a real presence. When she comes into a room, you know she's there. You know, big smile, big personality. So she's a very good politician, very deft, um, doesn't make a lot of mistakes. She made some mistakes in the presidential campaign, of course. And perhaps uh, she's not perfect, but she's very good. And, you know, I've seen a lot of politicians over the decades. I'm going to forgive your comment that she's not very tall, but she fills a room uh, on behalf of all people like me who are in the, you know, five foot three and under set. But you said that Kamala Harris obviously made some mistakes in her presidential run. Now, her presidential run is the first race she ever lost. I have kind of two thoughts about this. One, maybe she didn't have a ton of hard races before. Maybe she did. 
So what were the big mistakes in her presidential race? It seems to me that we know her best in California, and she didn't really gain traction in her presidential race here in California. Yeah. Well, she didn't gain traction. She comes from California, the ATM nationally for politicians, but in her first quarter, she only raised $12 million. And think back to 2007, Barack Obama uh, in his first quarter raised $27 million. So she never took off with donors. Uh, She never could get past Joe Biden in the polls. Um, She couldn't figure out what her lane was. She had different views on health care, which is a pivotal issue, certainly uh, among Democrats, but really among all voters. So she uh, she was uneven. Now, you know, a lot of politicians run for president and then and don't win the first time, Joe Biden among them. So, you know, I'm sure she learned. I'm sure when she runs again, I have no doubt that, um, you know, all things being equal, she will run again, that she'll be better. The best campaigns are not ones that display much drama. You you know, or if it happens, you don't know about it. This one uh, was kind of out there for, for people to see. Yeah, that tends to be, um, as you say, kind of the death knell, particularly when you're running an incredibly competitive national race. So let's start with her first political race. She runs for San Francisco District Attorney. Now, the kind of criticism of Kamala Harris for a long time, at least in California, is that she's overly cautious. It's almost a stereotype now to use those words when describing her. She's an overly cautious person. But it seems to me that that's a pretty bold decision. Do you know what made her first decide to run for office? Can you tell us a little bit about the dynamics of that first race? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the... the, the um the, the word caution, um, you know, I used that word a lot when I was at the Sacramento Bee to describe her. And I'm not sure it's the right word. I mean, I, I think she's careful. Um, and, and I suppose, you know, you could say cautious, but, but, but really when she, when she, but, but throughout her political career, she's, she's rolled the die. She's taken chances. Um, nobody, uh, I mean, she she had some significant support in her run for San Francisco District Attorney in 2000, late 2002, 2003. Um, but she started out in the polls with 6% name ID. I mean, nobody knew who this person was outside the, the, the uh, e- political elites of, of that city. Um, she was running against a guy, Terrence Hallinan, whose name ID was almost 100% in San Francisco. It was a generational name. It wasn't at all clear that she was going to win. She almost didn't get into the runoff, but when she got into the runoff, she followed through, she won. So why did she want to be district attorney? I think that that it was a, it was a good opportunity. It was a good stepping stone. Um, uh, she, you know, interestingly enough, she, she, uh, although she is, you know, clearly a liberal, she ran to the right of Terrence Hallinan, the San Francisco Chronicle editorial endorsing her said, uh, for law and order, Kamala Harris. Um, so, um, that said, she was, um, uh, obviously, uh, a good enough politician to knock off, uh, a, a big name. She got more votes in that election in 2003 than than anybody else, including uh, one Gavin Newsom, who was elected mayor that same year. 
You mentioned Gavin Newsom, our governor in California, and I was going to ask you about this later, but since you brought it up, what is their relationship? Are they friends? Are they foes? Are they friendly competitors? Has it changed over time? Do we miss too much nuance if we try and just say, oh, they're friends or they're enemies? I mean, it seems to me that in California, there are just only so many seats at the table when you want to have a certain level in politics, when you want to achieve a certain level in politics. Was there behind the scenes agreement? One of them's going to run for governor. One of them will run for Senator Barbara Boxer's seat when it was vacated. You know, was there a smoke-filled room where they said, okay, Kamala, you're going to go for the Senate seat. Gavin, you're going to go for the gubernatorial election. Well, uh, nobody smokes in California anymore, but that is Fair enough. <laughs> um, very clearly in 2003, 2002, they were rivals. You know, they were frenemies. She made a decision not to seek the death penalty against a cop killer right after she was elected in 2004. And the, and the, the emotions, the police officers were outraged about this. The then police chief was outraged about this. Diane Feinstein was outraged about this. And this lifelong opponent of the death penalty, Gavin Newsom, gave a quote to the Chronicle, I believe, basically uh, saying he was reconsidering it or something along those lines. So at, at least at that time, they, they were rivals. Now, they clearly grew up together in politics. Uh, in San Francisco, she is DA, he is mayor. They had to have an alliance. I think over time, they became friendly friends. I mean, I do believe uh, that today they are friends, although I should say that, you know, I had requested time with uh, Gavin Newsom to talk about Kamala Harris for this book, and he didn't spare the time. So, you know, what is their relationship today? Um, I think he needs her, (laughs) and, and she also needs him. You know, she needs California to succeed. So let's go back to when she was deciding whether to run for governor or U.S. Senate. Um, Barbara Boxer announced in 2015 that she wasn't going to seek re-election. Kamala Harris had just been sworn in for her second term as California Attorney General. And uh, in fewer than two weeks, she announced that she was going to run for a boxer seat. And it was very interesting how it was described to me, the discussion in the weekend after she was sworn in, but before she made her announcement, is that it was put to her, do you want to be Elizabeth Warren or do you want to be Deval Patrick? Deval Patrick was a very talented governor from uh, Massachusetts, but not well known outside uh, the Northeast. Elizabeth Warren drove national politics. And increasingly, politics in the United States have become nationalized. It's not governors who uh, get nominated uh, for president in recent cycles. It's U.S. senators or Donald Trump. Uh, but it's these national figures, not people who come out of state houses. So, you know, so her decision was to run for the U.S. Senate. Now, she was attorney general, and we all know that AG stands for aspiring governor. And and she had opened up a committee to run for governor. But when the Senate seat came open, I think she she saw the virtue of running for the U.S. Senate. And it worked out happily because Gavin Newsom really wanted to be governor. That was what he was aspiring to. He had already made moves to run for governor when uh, in 2009 before Jerry Brown 
you know, made clear that he was going to run and he was going to be the governor, at least the Democratic nominee. Um, so, uh, so it all worked out. Newsom announced that he wasn't going to run for uh, for the U.S. Senate seat and, and all but made clear he was going to run for governor uh, once Jerry Brown was done. And Kamala Harris went off and ran for Senate and, and won ultimately very easily. We've talked a couple of times about, you know, she ultimately won very easily. So she has the San Francisco DA's race, which I think is, as we talked about, it's a pretty bold move to decide to jump into that race. Uh, then she runs for attorney general against the L.A. district attorney, Steve Cooley. Now, my question in that race has always been, did she win or did he lose? And I, I don't want to retread every time she ever had her name on the ballot, but it does seem to me that she caught, and not to take anything away from her, but that she caught a couple of lucky breaks along the way in the sense that it seems to me uh, Steve Cooley kind of imploded uh, in that race. And um, and then she ran for Senate. There was an open seat. And, see, and then I guess after we talk about this AG's race, I'm not sure she had a ton of real competition. It seems to me she cleared the field pretty quickly. But first mm-hmm. of the AG's race, is this her winning or Cooley losing? Well, I don't think he so much as imploded as he did fizzled. You know, he should have won that race. Uh, he was the L.A. district attorney. Far more people live in L.A. He was three-term. He uh, well-known in Southern California, certainly in Los Angeles, had a very good record. And, you know, she was the upstart. Uh, I think, though, that she ran a very aggressive campaign. Her team pivoted more quickly than his team did. I, you know, I almost think that he took it for granted a little bit that he was going to win. I mean, you know, on election night, he did declare that he had won. It's kind right. of premature because, uh, you know, Alameda County's votes haven't yet been counted. But there he was. Uh, uh, he, he even had buttons printed up as Steve Cooley, district attorney. Anyway, you know, he um, could have done more to win. But then in 2010, by 2010, the the Republican Party had really lost so many registrants, uh, uh, had, you know, quit the party, quit the GOP. And maybe that was an inflection point when just being a Republican meant that you were going to lose in California. You know, that said, I mean, I think the most interesting thing about that race was how it became nationalized. Those of us who were paying attention, who were covering it, and I I was one of them when I was at the Sacramento Bee, knew that uh, her being attorney general was not going to be her last stop. If she won there, she she was going to go elsewhere, going to go beyond or at least try to. But it doesn't really matter what we reporters thought. The Republicans nationally thought that she was somebody who they would have to contend with. And that's why uh, this Republican super PAC, uh, whose chairman was Ed Gillespie, the former chair of the RNC, Republican National Committee, spent more than a million dollars to knock her off because they knew that if if she became attorney general, she was going to go further. So they wanted to stop her then. You see some of that same stuff going on now. I mean, Lindsey Graham talking about how if Republicans take back the House in 2022, they'll move to impeach Kamala Harris. Over what? Who knows? <laughs> I don't think it matters. But the point is that Republicans understand that this is a woman to contend with. 
one of the things I learned in, in reporting Kamala's way, Steve Cooley told me that at one point his campaign manager, his chief strategist, um, said, you know, Steve, this is not really a race for attorney general. It's a race for vice president, meaning that Kamala Harris could well become a vice presidential nominee. Now, Cooley dismissed it and he dismissed it, you know, at his peril. People underestimate Kamala Harris at their peril. Why do you think that people underestimate her? I mean, is it, is this just something that typically happens? Is there some sexism and some racism? Is it you, you know, you you don't see it coming (laughs) until all of a sudden you're giving your concession speech? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, of course. Um, Yeah, people underestimate her. And I have little doubt that there's sexism there. But you know what, you, you, you know, if you talk to her, the very first time you talk to her, um, you can tell that this is a woman to contend with. She is smart. She, you know, when she wants to answer a question, she she's she's incredibly thoughtful in her answers. I should say when she doesn't want to answer a question, she's really good at not answering a question. You can ask it 10 different ways and, and the answer will be the same, which is uh, no, <laughs> no comment. So, yeah, I mean, if you... Um, uh, yeah, you can you can uh, underestimate her, uh, uh, but not until you know her. If you get to know her a little bit, you realize that this is a person to contend with. Now, I promised that I was going to ask you just a few moments ago about the Senate race. So we've done a little bit on the DA's race, the AG's race. The Senate race seemed to me to be a little bit of like the question of who's Joe Biden going to w- choose to be vice president, will it be Kamala Harris or somebody else? And the Senate race, to me, seemed like kind of the same thing. Will it be Kamala Harris or somebody else? And whenever we ask that question, it's typically going to be Kamala Harris. It doesn't seem like that was a race that really tested her. I don't think she had strong competition there. Or am I missing something about the dynamics of that race when, again, there was an open seat, Barbara Boxer decides to um, resign or not run again, I should say. And um, it's pretty clear that in California, a Democrat's going to win. I don't think she had real uh, pressure from the Democratic Party. I think it seemed to me that was always her race. Well, it was, but I mean, so many races are decided long before election day. And she has done this. She did this when she ran for attorney general. She made her announcement very early, uh, right after Barack Obama won in 2008. She made her announcement that she was going to run for California attorney general in 2010. (laughs) Uh, She did the same thing with the U.S. Senate race. As soon as Barbara Boxer made her announcement, uh, she she was quick out of the chute. And I think it probably caught other politicians a bit flat-footed. She locked up a lot of endorsements very early that first day. Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand, Cory Booker all gave her their blessing. And so then you have these other politicians around who are thinking, okay, well, you know, I, I'm starting from behind here. You know, And there were some serious politicians who were looking at it, Antonio Villaraigosa, Javier Becerra. Uh, Jackie Speer, there were some, you know, very good politicians who were contemplating uh, running for the U.S. Senate, but she raised a lot of money in that first uh, few days and locked up a lot of endorsements. So, yeah, it ultimately became an easy race. She 
ran against Loretta Sanchez, the Democratic member of Congress from Orange County, who was uh, not a very good candidate. Uh, the Republicans really had no chance in that race. They divided up the vote. So in our top two system, it was it was Harris against uh, Loretta Sanchez. Uh, try as she did, Loretta Sanchez just could never get any real traction. And, you know, having watched the debates between the two, having hosted Kamala Harris at, at our editorial board at the Sacramento Bee and going to uh, Loretta Sanchez's uh, editorial board at the Fresno Bee, there was no contest there, really. Kamala Harris was head and shoulders the best candidate at that point. So, yeah, it ultimately became an easy race. But part of that was because she was a very good politician and got out there so quickly. Now, yeah, I mean, she is, I think, very good at clearing the field. And obviously, she had a lot of popularity at that time. She was a statewide elected official. I think a lot of people knew who she was. And as you said that race may have been won before anybody really had a chance to declare because she was so quick to essentially say, I'm running, I'm going to raise a lot of money, and I'm going to be a competitive candidate. Now, once she gets to the Senate, what defines her tenure in the Senate? And I guess, first question, what was her relationship like with the other senator from California, Dianne Feinstein? We know that they had some initial tension dealing with Kamala Harris's decision not to seek the death penalty in a case where Dianne Feinstein said this is wrong many years before Kamala Harris was ever in the Senate. Did that relationship ever warm or did it just become professionally cordial? Well, yeah, I do think it warmed. I mean, you're right over that same death penalty case where where the police officer was murdered in San Francisco where she did not seek the death penalty. Dianne Feinstein was um, critical of her at the funeral of the police officer, really very uncomfortable position, I'm sure, for for Harris. Um, she was blindsided, had no idea that was coming. But then uh, when she won her second term as district attorney, it was Diane Feinstein who swore her in. So clearly they figured a way to get past that. When Kamala Harris got to the U.S. Senate, Diane Feinstein was incredibly generous in how she treated Harris, made sure that she had ready access to everything that is offered in the Senate, and encouraged her to get on the Intelligence Committee, which is an important committee to be on. Not a lot of freshmen get there. Um, so without a doubt, Feinstein was helpful to Kamala Harris when she first got to the U.S. Senate. The second part of that question is, what did she do there? Well, she went to the Senate to be part of, well, she assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to win in 2016. She had written a speech, or her staff, and she had written a speech uh, for on election night, assuming that Hillary Clinton was going to be the president. They tore that speech up. That night, she uh, and her staff quickly rewrote the speech when it became apparent Trump was going to be the president in 2016. And on that night, she gave an incredible fight speech. I mean, this was fighting for Black Lives Matter. This was fighting for people in this country without immigration papers. Uh, she was going to lead the resistance. And that's what she did uh, to the extent that she could as a freshman senator was to be important to the resistance to Donald Trump. Did she make a lot of friends in the Senate or did people always view her suspiciously like, oh, she's here for you know, X number of months until she declares that she's running for president? Was it 
a little bit of both. I never had a good sense of what her relationship was like with her colleagues. Yeah. Well, without a doubt, she made some very good friends. Ron Wyden, Senator Wyden, became a very good friend of hers. Uh, others viewed her as a show horse, you know, the difference between a show horse and a workhorse. She was more viewed as a, as a show, show horse. She clearly annoyed people in the bureaucracy, offended them. You know, she didn't do certain courtesies like have uh, pre-meetings with, with nominees. And, and she, she could be quite brusque with career people. One of the examples of that is there were four uh, high-ranking Homeland Security officials who were going to endorse uh, Joe Biden for presidency over Donald Trump until Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris as his running mate, and they, they just couldn't bring themselves to endorse Biden and Harris, so they held their counsel. So without a doubt, she created enemies. She can be tough. She's, you know, she is not universally loved by people who know her and have known her for a lot of years. Um, she has um, uh, caused bad feelings over the years. That said, she's got people who are fiercely loyal to her, you know, in, in ways that really only good politicians do. The best politicians have a loyal coterie, and she has that. You said she's caused some hard feelings. Is it impossible to avoid that when you rise to her level? I mean, it seems to me that you can't make everybody happy and still achieve what she's achieved. Or is it something more about her personality? I mean, would we say the same thing about Joe Biden? Again, is it a little bit of sexism? Is it a little bit of racism? Is it a little bit of um, her style? Do we have a sense of why she's, I mean, it seems to me, again, it's almost unavoidable to have caused some hard feelings. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've thought a lot about this. I think it's an excellent question. Is it because of what she is, uh, because she's a woman? I I don't know. Um, But it is the case that there are people out there who have been, you know, really loyal friends who no longer are. I mean that does happen with a lot of politicians as a as a reporter those are the you know people you tend to try to talk to the people who are no longer friends of people in high positions that said you know she she does have this loyal group around her and she tends to that group she makes a point of calling people on their birthday she makes a point of you know if somebody has a child or a grandchild reaching out and and you know congratulating him so you know she pays attention to this stuff and it's part of being a good politician and and i do think you're right that as people rise um sometimes uh, feelings uh, get hurt and friendships disappear well Speaking of a situation where there could have been hard feelings, I think this brings us obviously to her last race when she was running for president of the United States. Back to that famous first debate, Uh, she's on stage with former Vice President Joe Biden, and she really goes after him. I mean, she clearly understands that he's the front runner. He's the person she has to try and take down, and she goes after him personally. So first, can you remind us what happened in that first debate? What did she accuse Joe Biden of? So Kamala Harris was running to win. She wasn't running for second place. She didn't want to be runner up. She wanted to be the nominee. In order to become the nominee, 
her path really did go through South Carolina. And she knew that she was going to have to win South Carolina, the, the Democratic primary there. And that meant she was going to have to topple Joe Biden. Uh, and that meant she was going to have to weaken him among his uh, within his base, which was black voters in South Carolina. And so she went right after it. She recollected that when he was in the U.S. Senate, he worked with uh, segregationists in opposition to busing for school desegregation. And she pointed out that she was bused as a first grader in Berkeley. And uh, and so her line became, you know, I was that little girl, that that little girl was bused. And so she was a beneficiary of school desegregation. It was a true gut punch. Uh, the goal was to knock Biden off his pedestal as the front runner. It didn't work. I mean, it worked for a minute, maybe, uh, but it ultimately did not work. His support among African-American voters was uh, resilient and incredibly strong. So that was what she did. And it is an example of, of you know, she knows how to do bare-knuckled politics. You come out of San Francisco politics. I mean, San Francisco has an image of being lefty liberal place, and certainly it is, but it's also a place where politics ain't beanbacks. They play really tough in that city. And if you make it through San Francisco, certainly when she was there, you know how to do politics. And she did. It didn't work, though. Her, again, campaign didn't take off. Other politicians have run for president more than once and before they win. It's hard to become the nominee. And she certainly will as well. And in hearing you describe that, it's so ironic that she clearly was running for president. She wasn't running for vice president, unlike potentially some of the other people on the stage. But she's the one who got the VP slot. Now, um, how do you think that she was able to reconcile with Joe Biden? Is he Has he just been in public service so long that he basically says, look, I get it. She's an ambitious person. She wanted to win. I'm the front runner. That's that. I mean, is this, for lack of a better term, is it a marriage of convenience or is there a genuine uh, trust and friendship and relationship there? Or is it too hard to know at this point? It was um, incredibly important for Joe Biden that Kamala Harris had a relationship with his son, his late son, Beau Biden. When Kamala Harris and Beau Biden were both attorneys general, they were allies uh, in litigation against uh, the big banks over the mortgage crisis, the meltdown, the financial crisis. And Joe Biden referred to that multiple times, um, once in a speech when he gave in California to the California Democratic Party I attended. He talked about Beau Biden and his relationship with Kamala Harris and that mattered. It really mattered when he made the decision to select her as vice president. Uh, he referred back to Beau Biden and his appreciation for Kamala Harris, her wisdom, her skill, her abilities. And I think that that served her well. It mattered when uh, Joe Biden made his decision. So, uh, you know, part of running for president is understanding that you know, it's just it's just not beanbags. You know, people take shots at the front runner. He was a front runner. I think he must have assumed that, well, you know, it's not personal. It's only business <laughs> and got past it. 
you know, who knows what she said if she apologized to him. I my guess is maybe not. I mean, soon thereafter, after that attack, he uh, he modified his statement on desegregation. So in a sense, she helped make him a better candidate. And that's her job now is to make him a better president, to make him the best president he can be. I mean, that's the role of a vice president. So, And I think she's going to play that role. Uh, she understands that her future, her ambitions, the, the future of this country depend on his success. And so I think she is going to do everything she can to make him a successful president. So last question about Kamala Harris. What is that? What can she do to make sure that he's a successful president and therefore that she has a successful vice presidency that she can no doubt run on uh, at some point? Maybe it's in four years, maybe it's in eight years, maybe it's in 12 years. She's a comparatively young woman. I mean, she still arguably has 20 years uh, of running for president ahead of her, depending on what happens, of course. What are you looking to as somebody who really has followed her for so long, has written a book on her. What are you going to be looking to to see how she can make this a success? How can she how can she achieve um, success as being vice president? If there are disagreements, you and I and and the Washington Press Corps, nobody should have any clue that there are disagreements. If there are disagreements, they need to happen behind closed doors. She needs to provide him her best counsel. And you know, that'll be pretty good counsel. She is a smart person. She brings a different perspective to Joe Biden. I mean, she grew up in California. She's a person of color. She's a woman. She's, you know, 22 years younger. She understands issues in, in ways that he won't. Now, of course, he's got far more experience and, and she can learn a ton from him. And I suspect she will. But she's got to be the best policy advisor, the best counsel that he has. And uh, if we hear that she's making any moves to run for president before the proper time, whatever time that happens to be, that will be a failure. I'll be really surprised if that happens. I mean, she's really good at avoiding the public when she wants to. So my guess is that she's going to be careful to not overstep her bounds as vice president. She understands that he's the boss he's making the policy. Uh, It's Biden-Harris, not the other way around. Yes, it seems to me that that would be catastrophic for Kamala Harris if we hear that she's trying to make a run for president without the blessing of President Biden, without him saying very clearly, this is what's going to happen. This is what I want to happen. All right, Dan Moraine, author of Kamala's Way. We've learned a lot about Kamala Harris from you. Now let's learn a little bit more about you. Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? The person I would really love to be able to sit down and talk with these days is Anthony Kennedy. I mean, I just think he's such an interesting figure in California history. You know, the last Californian to be on the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, his relationship with Ronald Reagan, um, and some of the really important decisions. I mean, very conservative guy on on so many issues, but but really when you think of, of, of some of the issues that, that really affect California, his prison decision, um, some of his decisions on gay rights, um, just a, an, an interesting figure. Anyway, Anthony Kennedy. 
So for our listeners, uh, Former Justice Anthony Kennedy, of course, is a retired associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, hailed from California, as Dan said, and was, in fact, for a number of years, the most powerful jurist in the world because he was the swing vote in the Supreme Court. And so, so many advocates before the Supreme Court wrote their briefs essentially directly to him, you know, dear Justice Kennedy because they knew on big issues like affirmative action, like equality, gay rights, uh, abortion, the death penalty, he was going to be the one to make the decisions. And obviously his absence is uh, felt very strongly um, in the decisions that the Supreme Court has made since then. And we have um, a number of episodes on the Supreme Court that I will recommend to the listeners. But now back to Dan. Um, even though you refuse to accept that there might be a dinner party, let's now take you to a desert island. You're going to be stranded there, and you can bring one meal with you. Oh, yeah. So I was thinking about this. And, and you know, I really do like pasta a little too much. But then your guest, Carla Marinucci, talked about her pizza. So I want Carla's pizza when when I go on, onto a desert island. I hear that it's really good. I haven't yet had it. Shout out to Carla Marinucci. If you could make one also that's gluten-free and dairy-free, which I'm sure is just as tasty, then I also want to have some of that pizza. Now, third and last question. You get one superpower for one hour. What is it? I just... um I mean, one of the cool things that, you know, so unexpected about this book is that it's been translated into a bunch of different languages. I would like to be a Rosetta Stone for a little while. I did really poorly in, in high school uh, Spanish, one of, among my many failings. Um, so I would love to be able to, to understand some of these languages that I'm seeing this book translated into. This is a good moment for me to remind the listeners, Dan Moraine is the author of the new book, Kamala's Way, An American Life, published by Simon & Schuster. You can find it wherever you find your books. I, as I said, have read it. I really enjoyed it. I wouldn't just say that. And Dan Moraine, thank you so much for passing judgment with us. Oh, it's just been delightful. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You can find Dan on Twitter at Daniel Moraine, me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod. And I really want to genuinely thank Dan for his time. Uh, he spared us a lengthy conversation about how he um, makes wine. We'll have him back next time for that. And we're going to wish all of our listeners a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.